Welcome to episode 127 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's good? You know, I'm recovering from this uh, GI flu that I had, and it's good not to be sick. Amen. Just praise God for good health right now, because it was... It was brutal. It was really, really bad. Yeah, that's been going around, it seems like, the entire world, and it's been knocking people down. Like, this year, for some reason, it's been, like, particularly intractable and virulent for some reason. Yeah, it's funny, because I it was bad enough, so, so Ashley got it first, and it was bad enough that I actually took her to urgent care, because it was just, she was just that sick. And we got to urgent care, and, you know, you wait in the waiting room for, like, an hour, and then you wait in the exam room for an hour. And the doctor came in, and they're asking you, like, the normal kinds of, like, well, what did you eat today? Did you eat anything unusual? So Ashley starts talking about what she had for breakfast, and she's like, well, it could be foodborne, like, foodborne illness from the sausage, so just throw the sausage away. And then she goes, where do you work? And Ashley says, well, I work at the college. And she goes, oh, never mind. It's definitely the flu. (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> it's like it's like an epidemic at the college. Like everybody is sick, so I I stayed home. I got it. It was bad, but I'm healthy now, and it's good. Here's the thing about being married and presumably having kids: if one person gets sick, it's like a rocket launch. It's yeah. just a countdown. You can't stop it. It's yeah. almost like you have to resign yourself to the fact that you're going to be sick. But there's like a weird when you come out of sickness. I feel like there's like a weird ex post blessing there because it is one of those times we realize, man, it is just so good to have good health. Yeah. You know, like I don't sleep very well and most of it is because of the dog. I've talked about it before. Like the dog just doesn't, doesn't sleep right. Like she just wants to get up in the middle of the night at weird times. And, um, so like I constantly feel sort of like just, just on the edge of tired, not, not usually tired, but like just on the edge of tired, I could take a nap at any moment is kind of the the feeling. And it's funny because it's not like I've been getting more sleep since I was sick, but I just I recognize how not exhausted I actually am because of how just drained I was when my body was fighting this virus. Yeah, it's, it's good to be well. Isn't it's it? all it's, a matter it, of perspective. It's such a blessing. Yeah. yeah, it's such a blessing to have good health. So coming out of the flu is like sometimes like the best feeling in the world. It is. It is. It's like a whole, it's like, it's like when you can't, like when you are nearsighted, then you get your first pair of glasses and all of a sudden you realize how bad your vision was. And it's like, everything is in sharp relief. That's how I feel right now. My stomach is in sharp relief. That's a good point because I was just thinking about this the other day. And for some reason, this is totally burned in my memory. And then as I remember getting glasses for the first time, and I was like, probably like coming out, like junior high. Yeah. And I remember putting them on. And then my first memory was I looked outside of the office. And the leaves. And the, the trees had leaves. Yes. I, 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 could I had see, the same exact experience. Yeah. I could see like the distinct leaves. I remember thinking, wow, the trees are like particularly beautiful. And I think my father was like, yeah, that's just a tree. Yeah. So that sounds like dad. I had the exact same experience. <laughs> I walked out of the glasses place and I looked across the street and I was like, I feel like I have supervision because I can see individual leaves. It's not just a mass of green. Yeah. Can we, so this is like, we didn't plan this totally off subject, but I'm glad you had the same experience. Can we just like brag on glasses for a second? Because I was yes. also thinking recently how something as simple as being like farsighted or nearsighted would have been just like this horrible chronic curse, like in the, yeah. you know, talk about in biblical times, for instance, like not being able to read or see things or see people or recognize people. 
man, we just take that for granted that that's such an easy correction, even with like LASIK now. Like, and apparently I just had a good friend do LASIK surgery, which to me just seems like, I, I just don't know if I can bring myself to do that. But, um, this idea of like, now they'll just do it on Facebook live for you. Yeah. That's crazy. Like that's how safe, you know, it is now, how common, how just mundane it is. Like, Hey, we'll, we'll cut up in your eye with a little bit of uh, some laser shaping. And yeah. you know what? It's not a big deal. Just put that in Facebook live. You know, it's, it's like getting your teeth cleaned. Yeah, it is. It's crazy. So anyway, praise God for glasses and corrective lenses and contacts. And just medicine in general. Yeah. Yeah. So let's do some affirmations and denials. It's been a little while. Do you have anything amazing to affirm today? It has amazing. It's like setting the bar high. But it's a well, high bar. Well, it just so happens I do actually have something absolutely amazing to affirm. So, of course, one of the most classic written books in the Christian canon has got to be Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And there's like and so many derivative things that have come out of that piece of work. So many things are named after that because it's just so iconic. And it's this, of course, allegorical story of this pilgrim's journey in the Christian life. And that's a book that anybody should read. You should read it like on occasion and with regularity. I think like didn't Spurgeon read it like, I don't know, 1.6 billion times, something like that. That's what he said. Approximately, yeah. Yeah, approximately 1.6. It's at least worth it. And so what I appreciate is many people may know the name Paul Cox, who is mm-hmm. the creator of something called Reftunes. Yes. These wonderful cartoons kind of in Reformation style, often using Reformed characters. And he has started this this journey, so to speak, with his <laughs> wife, where he's taken a pilgrim, the Pilgrim's Progress, and they've rewritten it into a poem and he's illustrated it as a children's story. And it is absolutely beautiful. It and is. what he's trying to do is in order to get this work out, he has started a Kickstarter where he's looking for support so that it can go to print, so it can be edited, get the ISBN number, all that good stuff. Yeah. It is phenomenal. And so I would encourage everybody to go to kickstarter.com and search for Ref, R-E-F, Tunes, T-O-O-N-S, and go and support his work because this is something that really should be in every child's library and actually maybe even every adult's because he's, yeah. they've done such a good job of taking the summary, the real meat and heart of this story and put it into this wonderful verse. And the illustrations are killer, aren't they? They are. They're super good. And we've, we've talked a little bit before. I don't know if we talked about this on the air or if we talked about it just privately or whatever. But I, I've like never actually made it all the way through Pilgrim's Progress. Because, really? yeah, it's just like, I don't know what it is. It's like tough. it's It's not very like easy to read. It, it's right. like it's in this weird dialectical format, but it's it's not super clear who's speaking all the time. The language is, is old. You have to really like... It's not like um, Chronicles of Narnia or some other sort of like symbolic writing where it kind of jumps out at you. Like you really have to think. But this is cool because the story, like the concept of the story is so compelling. And this is cool because it gives you a way to work your way through this classic story and get the framework and the idea of what's going on without having to sort of like slog through Bunyan's original writing, which you should sure. do at some point, And I'm going to do at some point, but it's hard to do. And it, it's, it's true. Like his illustrations are so good. They're so like charming and winsome. And um, each character is so distinct and unique. It's not like 
all of the characters are basically the same. Um, it's just a really worthy goal. And what's cool about it is is he's got the Kickstarter. You know, Kickstarter, you get certain rewards. And he's got the Kickstarter set up where at $20, you get the hardcover book and the ebook. So you get the book to read in electronic form and you have a hardcover book either to keep or to give away. And the fact of the matter is, I would pay $20 for this book. So why wouldn't I go and pledge $20 to exactly. help him make this happen and then also get a copy of the book? So you can go to Kickstarter, um, you can search for Reftunes, or you can search for The Pilgrim's Progress, A Poetic Journey. Um, and we will go ahead and put uh, a link to the show notes in there as well. But definitely go check it out. It's super, super good. And, you know, I love what I've read of The Pilgrim's Progress is it's so it really does represent kind of every Christian's journey. Like there's some unique things in The Pilgrim's Progress that are really kind of hyper specific to Bunyan. But apart from those few little nitty gritty things, The Pilgrim's Progress really is just it's all of our journey. It's all of our story. And so being able to sort of communicate this in a new, fresh way that I think what's cool is it, it appeals to children um, in a way that like Pilgrim's Progress as a like an allegorical story just can't. Right. I totally agree. I, actually, so I just checked. And apparently Spurgeon read it a hundred times. So I was only off by like a factor of a million. But <laughs> the bottom line is this is actually so killer that I think even as an adult, you can get something out of this for yeah. the, exactly the reason you just said is it kind of pulls out all of the main pieces of the story and gives you the gist without you having to go through all of the kind of intense work of trying to understand the original language. So everybody should pick up a copy. It's just a beautiful thing to have in your library. Yeah. And you're right. For $20, you can get the book and you get a, a PDF copy as well. So, and I would encourage people to, I mean, there's other levels as well. If, if you are feeling generous and the Lord has blessed you for $120, you can get 10 of those books and you can just go to your church and hand them out or throw them in the church library. Like this is just a wonderful thing to, to have. So we'd really love you to go out and uh, check this out. I can't really affirm this enough. Yeah. And I'll say this, let's throw down a little bit of a challenge today. So oh, like this. we are... Each episode that we put out gets downloaded on average about 600 times or so on the first day. So I would love it. I mean, this the goal he has is $25,000. That's pretty ambitious. That's a, a pretty high goal, but that's because making something like this and distributing it, getting all of the licensing, all the stuff that he has to do is, is a hard thing to do. So let's try to see if we can get him, let's see, 600 times 20. What is that? 1,200? No, 12,000. 12, right. Six, 600 times 20. I'm. This is live podcast. 12,000. 12,000. So if everybody who listens to our show gave $20, we could get him half of the way to his goal. So let's see how close we can get to that. I mean, this sounds like a PBS pod, pledge drive. And we promise we wouldn't do that. <laughs> but we won't, we won't, we don't recommend stuff that we don't like. That's like why you don't hear us like, we don't sell Casper mattresses on the show. Like we only recommend stuff that we actually approve of. So although I do need a new mattress and maybe I'll get a Casper mattress, um, but let's try to get him as close to our goal as we can, because this is really a worthy project. Yeah, I love it. And you can find him as well. Paul Cox on Twitter at Reftoons. Yeah. And we rarely talk about our Twitter account, which we have, but we're reformed brohood. So yes. if you do give, would you just like send out a tweet if you're on Twitter or send something up on Facebook? Let him know that uh, you heard about it here and that we're thinking of him and pulling from because he's a great brother. Yeah, he is. So what do you got affirming this week? 
Well, so, uh, wait, amazing thing. Let me reframe that. What amazing and incredible <laughs> thing are you affirming this week? See, I I actually cheated a little bit because I knew what your affirmation was. So I set it up, but you don't know what mine is. So you just set me up for massive failure because I yes. knew yours was actually amazing. Before we go on, I just want to make an editorial note. You said that Pilgrim's Progress is part of the Christian canon. So I want to make it clear that Jesse did not actually staple a copy of Pilgrim's Progress <laughs> to the back of his Bible. He just means it's part of the corpus of classic Christian literature. Yes. Lowercase c. I yes. guess I should have explained yeah. that better. Thank as you, great Tony, as for it is, me it's for not all the kinds Bible. of hate mail. So I'm affirming today a little game that I like to play sometimes. It's not like a board game. It basically, um, so think of an actor that you know. Name an actor, like a, a popular actor right now. Right now? Um, Name any I'm actor that you're aware already. of. Um, who is the person that plays <laughs> Leslie Nope on <laughs> Parks and Rec? That's all I can Leslie think of right now. Leslie Nope? Is that the blonde one? Yes. Amy Poehler. Amy Poehler. Thank you. Right. And that's actually a good example. So the game is, or, or the game, the game that I like to play basically is you pretend that every character that Amy Poehler plays is actually the same character. Okay. So you have to sort of try to construct like a narrative between two, um, two characters that she plays. So she gotcha. plays Leslie Nope on, uh, Parks and Rec. What else? And she's also on Saturday Night Live, but that doesn't really count. So what else does she is she in? Do you know? I don't actually. So maybe we need a better character because I can't think of anything else either. Oh, here's here's I'll give you another character then from the same television show, but I know has crossed over. So Rashida Jones. Yes, this is a really good example, actually. So it would be like if you're watching Parks and Rec and you'd be like, man, it's too bad that that, that things didn't work out with her and Jim because they would have been a really great couple because on on. Um, the office, she dated Jim for a while. She was a character right. on, on there. Um, or, you know, even if you wanted to get really meta, you could be like, man, it's really crazy that her twin sister worked at the, uh, that, that branch in, uh, uh, Dunder Mifflin. Cause that technically like is in the same universe. So it's right. You, or you could be like, man, she must be in the witness protection program. Cause she yeah, had wait, to change so her name. Test she this out. So if, if you were going to construct a narrative that gets her from, cause presumably, the office came first, right? So if you're going to construct right. a narrative that got her from there to Parks and Rec, give me that story. What happened? Yeah. So it'd be like she was at, um, cause she got the job at corporate, right? So she went to Philadelphia and, um, when she got to Philadelphia, she witnessed a murder and it was like a crime mob boss. <laughs> and so she had to change her name and move to this like tiny, tiny city out in the middle of nowhere and like change her whole career. She had to like go to nursing school, but you don't actually ever see her really do any nursing. So it's all the front for her to, to like be in this witness protection program. Gotcha. So even the hospital is in on it. They know they're just trying exactly. to protect her. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they had to fake, they faked credentials for her, everything. Which actually is somewhat seems legit because like you said, in Parks and Rec, you never actually really see her administer any kind of medicine. It's true. She's just basically doing basic kind of data tasks like taking information and feeling people's yep. necks and stuff like that. So you're right. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite example, uh, this was like my crowning achievement of this game because it's really great when you have two people that you can do this with. So my favorite is, um, uh, so you have Martin Freeman who plays, um, Bilbo Baggins, like a young Bilbo Baggins in the Hobbit. And he also plays John Watson in the BBC series, Sherlock. Then you That's also right. have Benedict Cumberbatch, or as I like to call him, Benedict Cucumberbottom. 
or blueberry crumble bump him. Uh, he plays <laughs> Sherlock, but he also plays the voice of Smaug in The Hobbit. So my way of connecting those two is that the scene in The Hobbit where Martin or where Bilbo is being like interrogated by Smaug and attacked by him is actually a nightmare that John Watson is having about like a job interview with Sherlock Holmes. Wow. I know. So just try it next time. And it's fun to try to do on the fly. So like um, today we were watching this show Poldark. You know, you've seen Poldark, right? Oh, yeah. Poldark. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. We've, so we were watching Poldark today and the guy who plays Poldark is also I don't ever remember which dwarf it is, but he's one of the dwarves, uh, one of the handsome dwarves in uh, The Hobbit. And I was like, man, it must be really unfortunate when you get reincarnated as a dwarf after you die. <laughs> That's your connection. That's my connection. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can, one more time. Can you give me the second name that you use for Benedict Cumberbatch? I can't because I make those up on the fly. Oh, I think I said I think I said blueberry crumble bumping. Yeah, something like we got to make that a Twitter handle. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I'm sure there are a lot of fake Benedict Cumberbatch uh, Twitter handles. Uh, that's really good. I should make one that's like Benedict Cumberbatch loves penguins. <laughs> Penguin. 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 <laughs> Nobody knows what that's about. Do I'm sure about lots that? of people know what that's about. He had this like time. He was like, a, didn't he do narration for like a Animal Planet type thing? And yeah. he couldn't say penguin, but it was a it was a narration about penguins, and he kept saying penguin, penguin. <laughs> penguin. Somebody got off the rails. I know. I love it. So, what do you got for a denial today? Uh, so this is something you and I just were speaking about. Yep. And this is basically. A denial of d- denying people not being careful with whom they associate, even yeah. if they think they have good reason to associate or they're not associating in the way that we think. And yeah. my example this week is the whole thing with Francis Chan and Benny Hinn and Francis Chan, new association in some way or another with like word of faith movement and all yeah. that stuff. So, and we've said this before in the podcast, just that association by itself without further clarification in the absence of specific information doesn't necessarily mean that. Francis Chan, for instance, is now taken with that philosophy. However, it's just not helpful and often not right. wise. Yeah. And so it does seem like he is kind of, I think you said like gushing over his yeah. connection with them. But I, I just think we got to be so careful as Christians. And this is not to be legalistic. It's just to say, well, I think you brought up like, you know, bad company corrupts right. good morals. But even beyond that, it's just, particularly for preachers, this is what preachers got to understand, especially when they are kind of celebrities in their own right, which many of them are nowadays, that their associations, associations like this, even if it's just like a selfie with somebody, it does matter. If yeah. only because it, if it causes all this heat and this distraction away from their ministry. So it's just one of the things I think that they have to be careful. So I'm denying these kind of associations, even if they're loose. You just got to be careful. Yeah. And I think, you know, like the Francis Chan thing, when you mentioned this, it's funny because I kind of rolled my eyes, but mostly because I'm just sick of hearing about it. Um, because, yes, Francis Chan gushing over not just Benny Hinn, but Todd White and a whole host of other just straight up her- of them. heretical false teachers. Um right. But what's frustrating, though, and maybe it's not frustrating, maybe it's illustrative, is that a good word? That's a good word. um, It actually demonstrates just in general the lack of discernment that Francis Chan is um, exhibiting. Because he's one of those people that, like, has always been kind of on the edge of, like, 
mm, I'm not quite sure about him. Um, some of the stuff he's written in his books, which are tend to be like overly emotionally driven. They tend to be very like fluffy and kind of happy go lucky books. But he's also been associated with sort of like um, a modern charismatic movement for a long time. And so right. it's one of those things where like when when you're already in a questionable movement and then all of a sudden you see someone who seems maybe to just be on like the far end of your questionable movement and you, you want to build a bridge and maybe he's doing that. I, I don't know why he's doing this. I have no idea. I haven't heard him say or, or speak on it at all, but to put the most positive possible construct on it, maybe he recognizes that these men are sort of deeply in error and he's trying to like build a bridge so he can like minister to them and preach the gospel to them. But when you put things like, oh, this is a man of God, you're talking about Todd White, who just straight up lies to people about healing, or Benny right. Hinn, who says there's nine persons in the Trinity, when you start to call these people great men of God, well, you lose all credibility in your own ministry. And it really is true that like it's more likely for Benny Hinn and Todd White to draw Francis Chan further into error than it is for Francis Chan to pull Todd White and Benny Hinn further into orthodoxy um it just that's just like the reality of it so it is it is disappointing um but it's also one of those things that i'm actually not 100 percent sure why like the reformed twitter sphere is so so irate about it i don't this may sound really terrible i don't know why anybody in the reformed world cares about francis chan like it just i just don't understand why people are so focused on this it seems like he's kind of outside of our circles but it seems like everybody is really freaking out about it. So I'm not really well, sure. That's just it. That's kind of why I want to deny it, because I think part of the problem is it just becomes a distraction. And I think in our sphere, I think what happens is people are so hard against Benny Hinn for good reason that they just get upset with anybody else and kind of mainstream evangelicalism associating with that. So I think it's, this is yeah. more about Benny Hinn and that drawing the ire from him and now being transferred to Francis Chan. But yeah, it, yeah, it's just like, I, there's no good reason to presume in a sense that he is trying to build that bridge at, because he hasn't really communicated any of that. So when right. he posts this stuff online, it just makes it seem like uh, yeah, I'm totally supporting these guys and I'm down with what they're talking about. Right. It's just a major distraction. Yeah, I agree. You will never see us posting selfies with Benny Hinn. It's that, true. I can say pretty confidently. It's true. Every once in a while I post a selfie with Jesse approximately yeah, every like I, six months since that's about how often we see each other. And I totally affirm you every day of the week and twice on the Lord's day. It's true. Yeah. So what do you got? Let's hear your denial. So this is going to be one of those episodes where like my denial ends up being the whole episode. <laughs> so buckle your seatbelts folks, because it's one of those episodes. So I love this. I am denying on two levels and we'll talk about it. I'm denying we're going to lose like 30% of our listeners right off the top here. I'm denying the statement on social justice and the gospel. Now, before oh, everybody no, starts thinking that I'm a heretic, I'm not denying the content of the statement on social justice and the gospel. I'm denying the fact that the statement itself exists and was written and is being used in the way that it is. Um, because over the last week, um, Really, the last week since Shepherd Conference, um, there's this really, really like hush hush Q and A that happened at the Shepherds Conference, and there's been a couple shows that did like recaps of it before it got pulled. Have you heard about this, or are you 
oblivious oh, because you're not on, okay. So um, Shepherd Conference is this big conference that uh, John MacArthur puts on at his church. And generally speaking, it's kind of like the who's who of the conservative evangelical resurgence. So like the biggest names usually are John MacArthur, Al Mohler, Lagan Duncan, Mark Dever, the people you would expect who are kind of like heads of big ministries or seminaries that are sort of spearheading the conservative resurgence. And this year, you know, they're they're doing everything they normally do. And there's this Q&A that comes up. And what's weird is it didn't actually become much of a Q&A. It actually ended up becoming kind of an interrogation, um, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that, actually. Um, it, but and, it, and there's some hints in the conversation, actually, that the panelists knew that this was coming. Um, so it didn't seem like it was a total blind side. But I, I don't know that, like, all of the questions were presented ahead of time. It seems like some of it was kind of um, spontaneous. But the statement for the social justice in the gospel was a statement that was written um, primarily by 14 Baptist men. And we'll talk about why I included the, de the description Baptist there when we get into it. But 14 Baptist men at a coffee shop in the summer of 2018 started to talk and draft this statement. And then they published this really, really slick website. Honestly, like it's a really great website, but they published this statement on this slick website with these, and it ended up only being 13 men who were the initial signatories. So I'm not sure what happened there. Um, and then they invited people to sign the statement. And so um, we had something, I think it was like 100,000 people signed the statement. And this is what's this is what's driving me nuts. Okay, um, I, my wife may disagree with you on this, but I'm not normally one to say I told you so unless it's really really significant that I told you so about something. So, like, if I say to my wife, "If you don't take the dog outside, she's going to pee on the floor," and then the dog pees on the floor, I'm not running around going, "I told you so, I told you so." But when, for example, Tulian Chavidian, uh you know, starts to talk about ministry and I go, he's, he's preparing to go back into ministry. And then, um, a couple months later, he's preaching somewhere for a Christmas Eve service or something like that. And I say, look, I told you so it's because it's a big deal. And over the summer of 2018, I said, you know what, when, when, when people who are acting outside of their office, create these non-ecclesiastical documents, they will eventually and almost invariably become measures of orthodoxy that then become like litmus tests for people, whether, whether they're orthodox or not, or even whether they're Christians or not. And everybody right. called me crazy and now it's starting to happen. So I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of that phenomena and why it is. And, and I'm not going to speak for you. I would assume you're probably not too far off on me than this, just because we're usually pretty close on this stuff. But this is why I'm opposed to these kinds of statements is because what it's done now is is it's created a situation where a document which was drafted by expressly not the church is now being used to determine who's part of the church and who's not. Um, right. And that may sound extreme, but that's what's happening. So it's frustrating that everybody at the time was like, oh, no, no, you're you're just this is just a statement, a way for us to sort of draw some some definitions and to encourage a conversation. But now we have we have we have Al Mohler. And John MacArthur sitting on a stage and we have we have a clear tension and clear signals that we may be talking about a a concrete schism in some of the leading figures of 
what was the conservative resurgence um, probably 20 or 30 years ago that really like brought the SBC and a lot of Baptist organizations kind of back from the brink of liberalism. Now we have a schism among those men that seems to be brewing because of this document, largely because of this document. I know that people will point at and say, well, it's because of the issues. And that may be true, but the fact that this document has been drawn up makes it's a, it's a battle line. Now it's no longer like a distinction between two men. It's a hard black line in the sand that, that there's now Al Mohler on one side and, um, John MacArthur on the uh, the opposite side, the other side. They're now positioned as opponents to each other rather than as partners who have a disagreement here that are working towards a resolution. So basically, this is a conversation about extra biblical creeds and what is basically how creeds developed, what are they used for, where are they appropriate, where are they inappropriate. Right. And I think you're absolutely right. Like, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff here and there's a lot of energizing conversation that's happening about this right now. And so I I was thinking, you know, we, somebody might listen to us and say, well, you guys like quote creeds all the time or you're going to the confessions. And that's true. So it might be helpful for us in line of what you're talking about to help bring some distinguishing marks to why we affirm some and not this particular one. So, you know, I think we got to start with the fact that the scripture is from God. That seems obvious. But the understanding of the scripture belongs to the part of men. And what I mean by that is not that we on our own can understand it, but as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, it is our job to search out the scriptures. And so men must interpret to the best of their ability each particular part of scripture separately, and then combine all that, that scripture teaches on every subject into some kind of consistent whole. And then we have to adjust our teachings on different subjects in some kind of mutual consistency as part of a harmonious system. And so if we refuse the assistance afforded by statements of doctrine, which have been slowly elaborated and defined by the church, then we must make our own creed by our own unaided wisdom. And so the real question, I think, or choice is not between the word of God and the creed of man, but it's really between the tried and proven faith of the collective body of God's people in the private judgment and unassisted wisdom of the individual Christian or a small group of Christians. And that distinction is where I start to separate from this particular thing that you know, has been put forward through this social justice and gospel statement. So that, that's where I like, even by way of definition and understanding, start to, to part company. Is that kind of where, where you're starting? Yeah. I mean, on one level, yes, there, there's a qualitative difference between how this, and here's the problem, right? These guys... Um, I'm not going to read the whole introduction here, but these guys were really explicit that this is not an ecclesiastical document, right? This right. isn't a confession. This isn't a creed. We'll ignore the fact that it takes the form of a creed, that it takes the form of a confession. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it, it's not a confession. They weren't, there's no ecclesiastical authority that comes behind it. Um, my main objection, my main concern with these kinds of creeds, and yes, that applies to the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Yes, that applies to the Ligonier Statement on Christology. Yes, that applies to the Nashville Statement on Human Sexuality. Yes, it applies right now to the, the, the Dallas Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. Um, my main objection is this is not the task of not the church. And, right. and I say it that way because that's how they positioned it. Um, even though these men are pastors, by and large, the 14 men who talked about this and the 13 initial signatories, by and large, they're pastors. Um, they were explicitly and self-consciously claiming not to be operating in their office as pastor. Um, and so 
my main objection to this, like I said, this is qualitatively different because this was produced very rapidly. It was produced in silence, like in private, in secret, right? It's not as though there was public discussion and debate invited on this. Um, Al Mohler, actually, one of the main reasons that he says he didn't sign it. Um, I'm sure there's probably theological reasons within the document that he might disagree with. I don't know. He hasn't said that. But one of the main reasons he cites for why he didn't sign it is because he had no opportunity to review it ahead of time and offer suggestions or emendations. So he was either he was given this statement. It was kind of plopped on his desk and he was either asked to sign it or not sign it. And the fact that he didn't sign it is now being used not just by um, not just by like, uh, you know, internet trolls who want to like make a name for themselves by saying like Al Mohler's not a Christian because he didn't sign this. But like James right. White just did an entire 172 minute, I think it was 172 minute program. And he never explicitly questioned Mohler's salvation, but he said things like, well, the reason Al Mohler didn't sign this is because the 11th commandment of the Southern Baptist convention says you can't speak against another Southern Baptist leader. Now I'm going to say this, that is a downright sinful attitude for James White to take. That is a violation of the ninth commandment for him to assume the worst without any sort of explicit evidence to that effect. Now, it very well could be true. That may be why Al Mohler didn't sign it or maybe why he hasn't spoken out against some of the things that he has. I don't know. But the fact is that that is not assuming the best of a brother. And it is downright sinful to publicly say about someone that they're doing something for a particular reason when you don't have evidence that that's actually what's going on. So I'm probably going to catch some heat for that, whatever, that's fine. But the fact is that that's not okay. And so this, this statement is being used to demarcate who's in and who's out but it wasn't drawn up by the church. And that's the problem exactly. is like, and, and this is going to get to where I, I kind of eventually want to get is that the fact that all 13 of the signers, and I don't know who the 14th person was, I'm assuming they're in the same general milieu. All 13 of these people are, are not, not independent fundamentalist, fundamentalist Baptists in like the denominational sense, but they're all independent Baptists in that their churches are not, they believe in a Baptist polity which upholds the autonomy of the local church above and beyond any sort of connectional relation they have to any other. That's a core fundamental piece of Baptist polity. And so in order for them to form this coalition of 13 people and draft this document, by definition, they are doing it outside of their polity. So this is right. an extra ecclesiastical parachurch document that is now being used all across the country to determine who's in and who's out. And for me, that's just a major problem. And here's what's super unfair about this particular document. That is, you can't say, you can't write something like this, which by the way, is like formed with affirmations and denials. And right. we use that in a kind of lighthearted way as we talk about our recommendations. And that's why we use it. Cause that's a classic Christian formula for Exa how people do exa this. Kind of exactly. And so what's unfortunate is you can't do all that stuff, write it in this kind of specific context and format, give out specific doctrinal positions and then say, oh, not a creed. Right. Like looks like a creed. Smells like a creed, reads like a creed, definitely not a creed. Yeah. Like that, that's not even fair because, you know, creeds have historically been to like, to, like you said, mark, disseminate, preserve, like the attainments made in the knowledge of the Christian faith. And then you have often creeds are discriminating the truth from the contention of false teachers and to present its integrity, the completeness of the scriptures to summarize these really critical points. And then also to your point, 
Creeds are used to act as the basis of like ecclesiastical fellowship among those who are so nearly agreed so as to be able to labor together in harmony. And so when you have a document that looks, reads, feels like a creed, and then you have people sign this bad boy, you, like you said, by definition, if it were enough to say this is a creed, but pretend it's not, but now we're going to sign it. We're going to make a big deal of that. We're going to make sure that we're showing that we are actually affirming what's written here. And then we're going to, of course, have by nature of those who have signed it, there will be those that didn't. Right. Those that weren't invited to or those that said that they won't. You are by definition creating groups. I don't know how you cannot run away from the fact that this is acting like a creed. And because it's creating that line of demarcation, like you said, then by nature, you're going to have people that are in and that are out. And this will create tension because right. what do you do with those groups then? Like right. you can't say we've got groups, but they really don't matter. Well, then why do this whole thing to begin with? Exactly. And, you know, um, when this all boiled up in in the last summer, um, you know, there was all the controversy, there was all the discussion. And I said to somebody, you know, if this is, um, if we really look at this and say, this is no more authoritative than my blog or podcast, then sure, fine, whatever. That's exactly. great. If this is just a fancy blog with some theological content on it, and we can really truly understand this as the private opinions of these 14 men or 13 men, fine. Great. But the fact is, I don't put our podcast up there and then ask people to sign it saying they agree. Right. So so there's a there's a quant qualitative difference between what this is and what other forms of public theological individual opinions are. So it, it, there just is a total difference between how this is positioned versus how it's not. And so like, here's an example is that the CSBI, which was, um, I've, I've mentioned this before, basically was written by R.C. Sproul in his hotel room the night before, right? And then the committee met the next day and they made some adjustments. But for the most part, this was a document penned by one person, which is not necessarily that big of a deal because there are classic Christian confessions that were also written by one person that were then revised and affirmed by the church. So that itself is not that big of a deal. That CSBI, which is supposed to have no ecumenical or um, theological authority whatsoever, it was merely a statement designed to sort of like articulate and clarify what it is that this group of people believes. And by, by doing that, say, if you want to be a part of this group of people, then this is what you have to believe. That's fine. I don't actually have a problem with that function, but the problem is when you position it this way and when you, so here's, here's my, my main objection. I'm looking at the um, website, which you can go to at statement on social um, You can click on signers. And what we have is every single one of these men has their their qualifications, and I do that in air quotes. I don't know why I do it in air quotes because it actually is their qualifications. Their qualifications for um, why for their kind of their position on here. Most of these men are pastors. Now, what is the point of indicating that you are a pastor on a statement right. like this if you do not intend to have some sort of the authority of your office come with it? But that exactly. idea flows 100% opposite to what they've explicitly stated about what the statement is, that it is not an ecclesiastical document. And on top of all of that, as I said, this kind of document cannot come from a Baptist polity. There's no such thing as a Baptist coalition like this within Baptist theology. The SBC, for example, is a Baptist conference, Southern Baptist Convention, right, where there's a bunch of people that get together. And what they say is, if you want to join this convention, if you want to be part of this group of Baptists and have the benefits of this, then this is what you have to affirm. But that's not an ecclesiastical statement. That's actually a non-ecclesiastical organization because the Baptist theology does not 
does not recognize anything broader than the local church. So the SBC is not even actually an ecclesiastical body. So like when people say it's the largest denomination in, in North America, no, it's not. It's not a denomination. It's an, it's a very loose association of Baptist individual autonomous local churches. That's what it is. And so this, this document on one level has all of the trappings of an ecumenical creed, all the trappings of an ecclesiastical document, including the authority of the men signing it and producing it, indicating that they're doing so because they're pastors yet it's impossible for it to be what it appears to be. So there's all sorts of issues and, and complications in the very nature of this document that gives me pause. So I would go, I think, like even a little bit further, and you'll, you let me know if this is too extreme. I understand that if you read the introduction, they explain that part of what the purpose of this document is is to clarify certain terminology, really to, to explain in some respects some of this really important critical Christian doctrine and at least identify that doctrine. And I think that actually that beginning, that Genesis, that point is not even all that helpful because not only do you have all this nonsense, like you just said, where they're trying to make a big effort at saying that this isn't what it looks like it is all the while they're doing all the things that support the fact that it is a creedal statement. But I'm not even sure that the clarification that they're trying to bring is necessary in the sense that it hasn't already been documented elsewhere. Right. So my pr problem is like they're trying to like their big deal, essentially, this is my summary, would be because it's like in the title, this whole idea of social justice is they're really trying to ask or answer the question, ask and answer the question. What is the relative importance of social issues in society with respect to the gospel? Right. That's a fine question. I get that. You know, how do we understand the gospel as related to issues of social justice? That's fine. But I think what they're trying to do is so many people have appropriated the term with like these Marxist overtones right. and then apply that to Christianity. And they're trying to say, well, the pedigree of social justice in Christianity precedes that Marxist appropriation because we live under God's absolute you know, divine justice. Right. Fine. I, I totally get that. I think you and I would be like, yes, that's a fine statement to make. It's not even necessary, I think, to pen this document out of that point because any kind of statement like this has come from the church, like you said, the church writ large. And that process is, is an advancement that gradually works at kind of accurately interpreting the scripture and defining the great doctrines, which compose the system of the truth it reveals. And that happens often very slowly in a large group where it's vetted yeah. and not like in this kind of nuanced subset way, like you just said, in terms of like some kind of denominational structure, even out of like a single polity, that's never been the case. So the attention of the church has been through history, always been specifically directed to the study of one doctrine often in one age and another doctrine in another age. Because as the church has gradually advanced in the clear discrimination of gospel truth, she has at different periods set down an accurate statement of the results of her new attainments in a creed or confession of faith for the purpose of the preservation of in popular instruction. And so if that's the case, like that's why that's why creeds are necessary. That's why they're born out. I'm wondering, is the definition of social justice that extreme, this particular definition that we need to have this document written for that express purpose, because all it's done is got a lot of people fired up, brought a lot about, about a lot of confusion and just been once again, like a big distraction. So yeah. in terms of should this thing even be written because we need to define social justice and define it in this particular way, I would disagree with like the genesis of the whole thing. Is that too extreme? No, I don't think it's too extreme. I mean, I think on one level, um, I share all of the concerns that these men have articulated, right? Let me just be really crystal clear. Uh, it's been a little while since I've read this thing in depth all the way through, really poured over all the affirmations and I did that in August or whatever it was when it came out. 
I don't recall anything in there that I really thought was super far off theologically. And the articulation that James White gives about why he rejects sort of the woke church movement, um, the sort of like um, black liberalizing Christianity thing that's going on in, in certain parts of the PCA, the theological explanation for why he stands against that, I 100% affirm. I, I could right. stand up and clap when he says it, because what he's saying is that all of the, the all of the discussion that's going on about um, reparation and this group versus that group and having black Christianity versus white Christianity, I agree 100 percent with him that that flies in the face of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which creates one people who are are identified and identifiable by their union with Christ and their union with Christ alone, right? There's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no male, there's no female, there's no slave, there's no uh, slave owner, there's no Scythian, there's no Greek. There, that All of those distinctions, although temporally they are real, at the foot of the cross, they disappear. And his, his main objection, and hopefully this allays some concerns that people might have that I don't understand what they're saying, his main objection is that the opposing side, people like Jamar Tisby, people like Eric Mason, these people on this side, largely in the PCA, which is frustrating, and also in the SBC, which is equally frustrating, um, the people on that side are actually reinforcing the racial division that exists in those bodies by trying to say this group owes it to this group to do this, or that group has oppressed this group. Um, that's just, yes, there's been oppression. Yes, there's been racism. Yes, there still is racism. And yes, there still is oppression. But but right. I, as a uh, mostly white you know, middle-aged, uh, middle-class male, am not responsible for slavery. I, I don't, I've never owned slaves. As far as I know it, my parents never owned slaves. My grandparents never owned slaves. So like, there's nothing in my personal history that has been intentionally oppressive towards any black person. Now, I have biases that are formed by my culture, just like everyone else does. Um, so there's there's a middle ground somewhere that I think we need to fall on between recognizing, yes, in America, on average, it's harder to be a black man than it is to be a white woman right now. Like, it's just more difficult. There's more challenges. There's more disadvantages. Um at the same time, neocritical Marx theory that has this idea of uh, inherent oppression simply by being white, I'm inherently oppressing black people. That's also not true. But the fact is that I agree with their criticism. My disagreement is in drawing the line in this way outside of the boundaries of the church. And here's the question that I would ask specifically James White, who's a 1689 confessional guy, right? Specifically, what I would ask him if I was having this discussion with him is, do you not believe that your church church polity is big enough to handle this? Because what, what he has to do, what they've done, or John MacArthur, is your church polity not big enough to handle this? Can the church of Jesus Christ not address this? Because they've explicitly gone outside of their polity, outside of the church of Jesus Christ, to handle this. So, so that's my concern is that on twofold is, is it, is it the case that maybe some of these people need to rethink their independent polity a little bit. And I say that as a deacon at a Baptist church, right? So I'm not, I'm not slamming Baptists, but maybe these people need to think a little bit about what this says about their church polity. And there are plenty of Presbyterians that sign this document. But secondly, why do we need to create a, an extra biblical document? Does the London Baptist Confession of Faith not have a statement about the Imago Dei? It certainly does. 
So that's exactly my point. That That's what I was driving at is that I agree with you. You read this and I think our listeners, they jump on and read this and they should just check it out. You're going to agree with basically everything. You're right. going to be like, yeah, that's right on. I, I totally understand that. It's well articulated. So my point is kind of like, why do we need this thing? And exactly. it is couched underneath this social justice umbrella. And I think part of our problem sometimes as reformed people as is instead of doing exactly what you said, and that is, is the church of Christ not capable by the power of the Holy Spirit to actually make real change in this world, to real pragmatic change? Instead, we go to, let's write up a document. Yep. And and that's because we, we tend to be eggheaded in some respect, and we tend to say, let's really define everything really well, and that's going to be helpful. And instead, I think that that sometimes is like an adventure in missing the point. Because, so my my wife, as you know, Jen, is like a major renaissance woman when it comes to documentaries this woman like can watch any (laughs) documentary she's super open-minded super interested in so many things and because her turn of mind in her degrees are in anthropology and sociology she watches a lot of these really interesting documentaries about race relations and we watched one yesterday and i can't remember the name because she watches so many and she's just so wonderfully thoughtful about this but it was basically looking at the alt-right and basically like the, I guess the alt left or kind of libertarian approach where they they get this perspective from two different people. And on one hand, you have, you know, people of, of color who are basically saying, yeah, like we need to fight like kind of Antifa style, like against all kinds of fascism. And then you have these people who wouldn't call themselves fascists, but they're basically saying, well, you know, white culture is being threatened. And so therefore we got to stand up against that in whatever way we can. And I don't mean to make this go off and to be super political, but I, I all I mean to say is this. I watched it and it was like so unnerving on both sides. Yeah. And that's not because I didn't feel for those who are oppressed because there's real oppression, like you said. And I know that I have my own cultural biases. What made me sad was to realize that there are people that are so deeply entrenched in different kinds of perspectives and they're looking to bring cohesion to our world and to our particular society in the United States. But it is clear to me in watching this that unless the Lord opens our eyes so that we can see that what we need is not some kind of commonality we can manufacture, some kind of sentimentalism or some kind of movement of social justice that will make us just care for everybody else. What we need is what we to have in common, something that is transcendent and that is unification with Jesus Christ himself. Yeah, That's the only thing. So this document, I don't think helps in that end. I mean, again, I know it's helpful in the sense that it's bringing to light issues, but why couldn't this just, just been like an article or a blog post? I mean, why couldn't this just have been a a sermon if, if that, but instead it's, it's drawing even more lines, which is bringing about more division rather than less. And what we need is more of Jesus, not necessarily no creed, but Jesus, no book, but the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we need that love of Jesus. We need to be seeking after him and and clutching closely to the hem of his robe, so to speak. And absent that, there is nothing, not even the grandest statement here on social justice, that's really going to bring together some kind of fidelity or cohesion or unity in our culture. It's just impossible outside of Christ. And yet at the same time, the great blessing is to know that, for instance, wherever we are worshiping on the Lord's Day, we know that we are united with every people and every tribe and every tongue who is doing the same thing. And that is a glorious thing. Like that that by itself means that any differences that we have that are ephemeral or on the surface, even those that are deep-rooted like culture, do not matter, like you just said. Yeah. Like that's the glorious truth. That that's the gospel message that needs to go forward. Yeah. And and here's here's I guess where we where I kind of want to close this conversation is this document, I want to put a positive construction on this, right? We talk, talked about the ninth commandment earlier, and the ninth commandment also requires me 
to assume the best of my brothers and to try to see what they're doing in the most charitable light possible. Right. We talked about that when we talked about R.C. Sproul and, and his weird statement on God creating sin. And if I'm trying to be as charitable as possible on this statement, what it is, is an attempt to put down on paper in clear terms and say, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then to, to take that to people who they have concerns about and say, do you agree with this definition of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And there are some people like Al Mohler who are going to say, absolutely, 100%, I agree that that's the definition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and then you have people like Jamar Tisby, who I've heard say that the gospel necessarily includes um, sort of like these reparation ideas about white people paying black, back black people for slavery. And so you do have the reality that there are people in the kind of woke church movement who are adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They right. are adding what they call social justice, which is actually a form of, um, I don't want to call it cultural Marxism because that's just got so many like baggage terms associated with it right now. But they really are adding this economic theory, which is called Marxism. They're adding that on top of the gospel and they're making the gospel, um, they're making a, a redistribution of power a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ is that none of us have any power except that we have the power of the Holy spirit to right. be accomplishing the ministry of reconciliation, which has been given to us as emissaries of Jesus Christ because of what he's done for us. So yes, if Jamar Tisby adds to that gospel, just like the Judaizers added uh, obedience to the law. Now it's just a different law right? He's just adding a different law, but he's still adding a law to the gospel. We can say, and I'm not saying this specifically about Jamar Tisby. He's just the example that comes to mind. But if someone truly is adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can say along with Paul, and not only can we, but we must say along with Paul that that person is anathema. That person is outside of the faith because they have added to the, the gospel in a way that is not uh, acceptable. But to start to draw lines with men like Al Mohler and Ligon Duncan and Mark Dever and um, Matt Chandler has said some really concerning things, but I think it's mostly just a matter of um, maybe a little of infelicity of speech. Um, but to start saying that those men have added to the gospel when they would explicitly deny that, it's just not acceptable. So we really need to get back to this idea of what is the gospel and, and instead of drawing up these extra ecclesiastical documents, do we really think that our confessional documents have not properly summarized the gospel? Exactly. Right? Do we need a 2019 Phoenix Baptist confession of faith? I mean, do we need that? Maybe we do. Maybe they need to do that. I, I don't really understand the theological underpinnings of how that kind of confession can even come about. But maybe we need that. Maybe we need a, a 2019 revision of the Westminster Confession of Faith that includes a clearer articulation of what the gospel means in response to um, social injustice in our culture. Maybe we need that. But I don't think we do. And that's what's so frustrating about all of this. So we just got to go back to the gospel as it's articulated in our faith summaries of the scripture that we have as our confessions instead of making all these extra confessional documents. I totally agree. It, again, it just seems like a complete distraction. And it's not that, again, I'm, I'm not saying that there isn't a lot of good in this document. There's not a lot of wonderful writing and great clarification. It's just that I wonder, and I'm putting myself in the front of this first because I should be the first one to take the bullet here. And that is, 
if it almost seems like this conversation in, in, in some ways is completely unnecessary if we are really looking to model our lives after what Christ shows us in the Gospels. It yeah. really becomes a, a moot point. It's not to say that, and part of my concern for this is, like you said, the term even social justice carries so much baggage now yep. that it's nearly impossible to drop that term and have a reasonable conversation, especially with anybody from a different worldview. So if what we're saying here is, well, we just need to define this for Christians, what we mean by this. But my concern is because of that word is so just loaded that it's even in Christian circles become common just to think, well, we ought to just do good things because we're good people. Right. And the bottom line is we're not good people. Yeah. And if really we're doing just good things because we think that's what Christians should do and it makes us feel warm and fuzzy on the inside and like we've served God, well, in some respects, intent must always precede content. And so if our hearts are not in the right place, if we're not doing these actions with kind of a firm communication, like coming alongside it, conjoined with the actions is the presentation of the gospel itself. Yep. Here is why I do these things. Here is why I'm in the, the soup kitchen. Here's why I'm giving of my time. Then we're doing nothing better than all the other wonderful, you know, other non-government organizations that just do good things. I mean, it's just Red Cross. Yeah. And there's value in that. There's a lot of common grace in that. But what God calls us to is this different, higher level of learning that is so generous with what we've been given and which is so loving to the extent that it is like recklessly spendthrift. Yeah. And when we live like that, social justice is a term that just falls too short of the Christian ethic. Yeah, because absolutely. Because by nature, when we have a personal obligation to follow Christ, it will be lived out in a social context. And we won't need to label it social justice because we'll have already embodied that ideal by loving our neighbors as ourselves and loving God with our whole heart and our mind and our body and our soul. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better than, than that. So Jesse, I'm, this is one of those episodes where I have to go like take a nap after I'm done. I'm like wiped out. <laughs> I, I'm like tired now. It's like 3.30 in the time. afternoon. Yeah. Reform napcast. Yeah, that's perfect for a little Lord's Day is a little nap, a little discussion, a little yeah. edification, a little praise, a little worship. It's beautiful. Yeah. What's not perfect for the Lord's Day is um, a little going to the movies. That is true. Yeah. Sanctify that Sabbath. Speaking of the movies, though, can we play that game one more time, that little actor game? Let's do it. Yeah, so I'm trying to think of of somebody that would be particularly good, and I'm just going to go with Arnold Schwarzenegger. So can you connect for me two movies with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Oh, that's easy. Um, <laughs> is it? Yeah, wait, it'd wait, be like... You, um, you need to do like Terminator and is it Kindergarten Cop? Oh, it's way go. easier if you tell me the movies. It'd oh, be you like, want to just pick the movies yourself? Well, no, that's a good one. It'd be like... Um, It'd be like after uh, the events of Kindergarten Cop, then one of those little boys grows up to become uh, the inventor of Skynet. And when they create the um, <laughs> when they create the ro the killer robots, he designs them to look like uh, his most terrifying enemy, which was his kindergarten teacher, Arnold Schwarzenegger. That was actually shockingly good. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> like I said, it, play this game at home, folks. It's way it's way better when it's organic. And like when you like so when you when you're watching a show or a movie or whatever and you're like, "Oh yeah, I remember when he was in that movie." You just kind of go like, um, let's see. I just saw Captain Marvel and Samuel L. Jackson's in it. So it'd be like, "Oh yeah, it's too bad that Nick Fury flamed down and became that assassin in Pulp Fiction." 
I've never seen Pulp Fiction, yeah. so I'm just going to take your word or for that. Or like, um, it's really fun sometimes when there's overlap between the kinds of characters. So the guy who plays Captain America in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the same guy who played the Human Torch in the really terrible Fantastic Four movies. So it'd be like, man, it's really too bad that Captain America... Uh, had that problem where he became the fantastic or became the human torch. It's strange that that happens. I don't remember that in the comics. So speaking of which this one, one more, this one might be too easy, but let's do Benedict Cumberbatch and we'll go with the, the BBC Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Strange. Um, well, Dr. Strange is all about alternate universes. I mean, actually Dr. Strange and Sherlock Holmes are kind of the same character in a lot of ways. They're like these super hyper intelligent people that have these special powers. So it'd be like in reality, Dr. Strange is Sherlock Holmes. And he actually like it was a spell that went bad and he got like thrown back in time. And so he's using magic to be able to do all the stuff that he does as Sherlock Holmes. He's casting spells. That actually could be legit right yeah. there. Yeah. If that ends up being true, let everybody remember. Let's timestamp that right now. You said it first. And there's other ways you can do it too. Like even more fun is... Uh, Doctor Strange and Iron Man, right? Robert Downey Jr. and Benedict Cumberbatch both played Sherlock in different Sherlock movies. True. So you could even start to do that kind of fun stuff where you're like, man, it's really weird how this multiverse is coming together, where in this universe, Sherlock is both Doctor Strange and Iron Man at the same time. So I'm thoroughly convinced that this could be a totally legitimate game now. So that means you've got to name it. So what do you, what do you call this? I don't know. I'll have to think about it a little bit. It's kind of similar to six degrees of separation with Ke like with Kevin Bacon, but we'll have to put, we'll have to do a name on it. This could, this could be our podcast game, like our version of would you rather. That's true. That's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I love Les and Tanner, but I hate would you rather it's like, would you rather play? <laughs> would you rather or anything else? And I'm like anything else, anything, anything else. else. I miss the podcast. Oh, we love those brothers. Yeah. Well, we should probably wrap it up before we spin ourselves into a whole nother discussion. So I totally agree. Until next time, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh